0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS Sitrep, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russian forces are said to be a matter of miles from taking the whole of the Luhansk area of northeastern Ukraine. Its military assault is intensifying. After months on the back foot, we examine if Moscow's new concentrated strategy could finally give it the upper hand.
1: I think we're moving into what may turn out to be a decisive
2: phase of this conflict because the Russian armed forces are doing what they set out to do, having failed so monumentally in February and March.
0: This war has raised many questions over the last 13 weeks. We'll dig into what the public at large are asking about and Professor Michael Clark will provide answers. The UK has been clear it won't get militarily involved, but there is now talk of a potentially dangerous mission for the Royal Navy to help restart vital food exports from Ukraine to feed 400 million people.
3: The Russians have an awful lot of long-range anti-ship missiles. You're going to be on high alert. The minute you're put into a lane like this to police it, you're going to be at your highest sustainable state of readiness.
0: America, too, hasn't got militarily hands-on in Ukraine. But has Joe Biden accidentally revealed a very different approach
4: to protecting Taiwan? The Ukraine war has really focused minds here, as well as in Washington, about how it would respond in the worst-case scenario if China did choose to invade.
0: We're now three months into a war which many thought might be over in three days. But after failing to take the Ukrainian capital and giving up on taking the whole country, Russia's new, more limited strategy is showing some signs of working. It is close to taking the whole of the Luhansk area with the city of Severodonetsk as good as surrounded. Thousands of civilians are trapped there with food, power and medicines in short supply. It's a hell,
3: you know, it's hell uh, every day sharing. Yeah. A lot
0: of death. Now it seems like the front is all around the city. It's practically surrounded, trucks from the army being, being deployed around the city. So it seems very clear that to me, uh, it's about to fall. On Tuesday, UK defence intelligence reported Russian forces needed to close up only 16 miles to effectively hold Luhansk as whole. Professor of defence studies, Michael Clark, is here once again. Michael, we've heard this described as a decisive phase. Is Ukraine now fighting a losing battle for Luhansk?
2: Uh, it may well be now because uh, the, they've almost surrounded Severodonetsk. Uh, I mean, on Tuesday it was said to be they were said to be 16 miles away from closing the gap, closing the circle. They're now probably about eight, seven or eight miles away. You'd expect that circle to close in the next few hours, and the Russians are pouring everything into this particular part of the, the battlefront, and the Ukrainians are. Uh, undoubtedly at a crisis point now as far as Svery Donetsk goes, which is the key to Luhansk. Luhansk is the smaller of the two um, provinces, two regions that make up the Donbass, but they've almost, Ukrainians have almost lost it now.
0: And Michael, if Russia does take Luhansk, what is next?
2: Well, the Ukrainians have quite a lot of choices. If they get out, they've got about four brigades <coughs> who are west of the Severi Donet, the Seversky Donets Donetsk River. And if they get those brigades out, and I suspect that they will try to withdraw them, then they withdraw back to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, which are is the key to the whole of the Donbas region. And there is high ground to the east of Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. So I think if they escape from this particular pocket that's being closed around them, and I think they will, they'll fall back on the higher ground and then the Russians will have to come after them. Uh, And that will be a tough one for the Russians, but the Ukrainians are about, I think, to give up a fair amount of territory in Luhansk.
0: Well, one thing we've learned since Russia's invasion on the 24th of February is that, however much we try, it is difficult to accurately forecast what comes next, let alone how it will end. Each week, we've tried to follow each step, adjust our assessments appropriately, and answer as best we can what seemed to us to be the big questions. But this week, we wanted to take a step back and try to understand the questions this war raises for people who aren't studying it every day or discussing it week in, week out. Each day bfbs digital news editor james Nucky has been analyzing what people are talking and asking about ukraine and russia online and he joins us now um, james what are people asking about today
1: hi kate yeah thanks for having me on so we've been doing this throughout the conflict really looking at what people want to find out and what the biggest questions are being asked so some of the things we found out today that people want to find out are questions like how is the war affecting the oil and gas industry? What ramifications will the war in Ukraine have on Russia's aspirations in the Arctic Circle? Um, When the war ends in Ukraine, how might the country rebuild its military? There's also questions about Russia and Finland. So of course we know Finland's going to be, as applied to join NATO, and people want to know why hasn't Russia reacted to Finland the way they did with Ukraine? And then there's also questions about Russia's poor military performance in Ukraine and whether it will spark reforms. And finally, who's winning Russia or Ukraine um, and whether Russia is successful in taking the Donbass?
0: They're really interesting questions, aren't they? Michael Clark, I said to you last week that uh, we're going to put you on the spot to answer some of those questions. Would you like to come back on some of them?
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, on the who's winning, we're starting at the, at the bottom of the, of the uh, group, as it were. I think it's 50-50 at the moment. The Russians are certainly going to achieve some sort of territorial objective, but it's going to be a Pyrrhic victory. And as this war goes on, I think Ukrainians, if they continue to fight, will get stronger. They'll be stronger in numbers and stronger in equipment if they keep getting the aid which the West is giving them. So I think the Russians are in a hurry to get something out of this war quickly before, and they know as well as the rest of us know, that the the balance swings actually against them unless they're prepared to mobilise.
0: Yeah, and what about the effect on, on the gas and oil industry?
2: Well, that is restructuring because the thing about the um, oil industry is pretty flexible. And uh, the fact that Europe is ending its oil purchases from Russia by the end of the year is quite a big change. um, But the oil industry will will adapt to that. Gas industry is far less flexible because you can only sell gas to whoever's on the end of the pipelines. Mm -hmm. And given that the Europeans are determined to get away from Russian gas, and that might might take a bit longer than a year, but they're certainly reducing. I mean, Germany was 60% dependent on, on Russian gas before this crisis started they're now less than 40 percent and they're taking it down pretty quickly and the the russians therefore have got to build new pipelines to new customers particularly in china and asia And that will take them some years and so the gas industry although the price of gas is currently very high for all sorts of other reasons but the gas industry is is going through a major restructuring because for the foreseeable future europe will not buy any russian gas
0: yeah, and James, that list that you just read out, um, I mean, w- were any of them asked more than once? Were there more popular questions, more th- popular themes there that Michael can answer?
1: Yeah, we've seen a lot of themes coming up. Tactics, there's been a huge interest in the tactics being used on both sides of the war. Mm. A real interest to understand <clears throat> what militarily has and has not worked. Another theme that we continue to see is why isn't NATO doing more? What What could NATO do to further help Ukraine? Uh, of course, we know NATO nations have been providing Ukraine with kits, including the UK, but there are no NATO no NATO nations involved in the fighting itself. Um, thirdly, there's been a lot of people Googling and asking questions about why so many Russian generals have reportedly been killed in Ukraine. And mm. finally, finally, KIT, uh, this has been of huge interest to people on the, online. Uh, This ranges from some of the military equipment in the the UK and other Western nations have been providing to Ukraine, but also some of the technology being used on the ground. And this includes Russia's Terminator 2 vehicle, which Simon Newton has taken a look at for Forces News.
3: It's called the Terminator, a vehicle with the protection of a main battle tank, but one designed to destroy enemy bunkers and infantry positions. This is what they call a tank support vehicle. It's effectively a tank chassis, but with a different weapon system
2: on the top that's designed to support tanks in the urban environment.
3: The Terminator's been around since 2005 and is based on the hull of the T-72 tank. The version in Ukraine is known as the T-2. It carries three crew and is armed with anti-tank missiles, a pair of 30mm cannons and a 7.62mm machine gun.
4: If you
0: want to see Simon's full report on the Terminator 2, it is on Forces News YouTube channel right now. Um, Michael, Terminator 2, the name certainly invokes fear. How fearsome is it?
2: Well, we don't really know yet. You know, it's often said that a a camel is a horse designed by a committee. And I think Terminator 2 is a bit of a camel because it's what soldiers say (laughs) they want. So you take a tank chassis, T-72, which is a perfectly good chassis, And you stick on it everything the soldiers would like to have. So two 30-millimeter cannons, four rocket launchers, a couple of grenade launchers on the back. On some models, there are smoke grenade launchers and then a heavy machine gun. I mean, the amount of ammunition that must be rattling around inside this thing when it goes into action is hard to imagine. It's meant for the urban environment where main battle tanks, their guns aren't flexible enough. They can't, they can't go high enough or low enough. But to be honest, I think it'll turn out to be as vulnerable as any other T seventy two tank chassis to breakdowns or to attacks. There's, the, the Russians have only got about eight or ten of them in operational. Use and they've Mm -hmm. sent them all now to uh, Sverigonetsk. So, if we end up seeing fighting in Sverigonetsk in the streets, we may see if these eight or ten Terminator 2s make a difference. I suspect, I suspect that they'll turn out to be a camel.
0: And, James, um, just to go back to some of those questions that people have been asking the one about NATO, why isn't it doing more? And we have talked a lot about NATO's position on here. Um, Is it because we haven't really been communicating well enough the position, James?
1: I'm not sure. I think. People don't necessarily understand that Ukraine isn't part of NATO, although they have a partnership. Um, but people want to know why Why can't NATO do more? Why are they providing this kit? But why can't they just go that extra step Yes.
2: I mean, it's the members of NATO who are providing all the help. So it's individual states like, you know, Denmark or Germany, Britain, America, who are sending the material. And NATO is certainly coordinating it. And NATO is, as it were, acting as the political framework. But NATO has got to be very careful that its, it's responsibilities to its members and and Ukraine is not a member, Um, and also there is a a red line in this conflict, which both sides, both the Russians and the West, absolutely recognize, and that single red line is that NATO forces and Russian forces shall not fight each other directly, and if that line Mm -hmm. gets crossed, or if that line gets very blurred, then the crisis will become much, much more dangerous to to the whole of Europe.
0: And what about that question, Michael, about why so many Russian generals are getting killed?
2: In general, because they're coming too far forward. the 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 uh, the offensive had been so badly handled and stalled for all sorts of reasons. There wasn't a single reason why the Russians failed, there's about one hundred different reasons, all cumulative. And generals were coming forward. I mean, these um, you know two-star generals maybe they should have been miles behind the conflict, so that they were organising. They're managers, and even in one case, three-star general. Um, and indeed, Gerasimov himself, the head of the armed forces, you know, was at Izium uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he got wounded in an attack on Izium. And so the generals are getting wounded because they're getting to the front line, uh, presumably uh, to actually. Do, Get the thing moving to, uh, you know, to, uh, um, I was going to say, to, to kick backsides uh, in order to make <laughs> things happen, which is why they're in dangerous positions. What's interesting, of course, is that the, unless the Ukrainians were extraordinarily lucky, um, they were getting very good information as to where these people were just at that particular moment.
0: James, I'm just really curious to know whether or not you've noticed a kind of pattern as to what people ask on any given day, depending on what's happening in Ukraine.
1: I'd, I'd definitely say there there, there is a correlation. Uh, when the reports came out of the Terminator 2s being sent um, into Ukraine, there was a huge spike in interest on that vehicle. Um, that's something we've seen kind of throughout the conflict with new deployments of, of weaponry and, and um, other military assets. Um, there's been a number of questions that have, have stood out during the war, um, and we've seen things continually come up. Um, you know, there's questions about how long can this war go on for? Uh, what What's the end game for Putin and Russia? Questions on morale of the Russian military. And why have the Russians underperformed so, so poorly? And, and why has Russia been losing so many vehicles as well?
0: Michael, how long can the war go on for?
1: Uh, in theory, it go
2: gone for a very long time, and I think it will be in a series of stop-start offensives. I think the Russians will try to pause if they can take the whole of the Donbass and the land bridge towards Crimea. I think they'll then go in for negotiations. But the Ukrainians will know that the Russian Russia under Putin wants Ukraine to disappear. Putin doesn't believe that Ukraine has a right to exist. And so even if there is an armistice or some sort of ceasefire that lasts for, let's say, a year or 18 months, it will it'll break out again because the Ukraine will arm themselves to the teeth, quite rightly, Mm. and will keep pushing on the areas that the Russians control. So I think this war will go um, into a a series of peaks and troughs. But I think we are looking now at a Russia-Ukraine conflict for as long as we can foresee, until certainly Putin uh, is out of power and Russia takes a different view altogether on European security matters.
0: Uh, And are you surprised, Michael, by any of the things that people have been asking
2: Uh, No, I think these are all perfectly good questions, actually, uh, because this is—I mean—wars are open-ended. You know, it's very easy to start wars; it's very hard to bring them to a conclusion, certainly a conclusion acceptable to the people who started it. And so these questions just keep—you know—keep on running. And I I think this is the new reality, and the questions I think reflect that new reality. The only thing that that I haven't heard so far from what James has said is that um, nuclear issues. Whenever we do Mm. Q and A. In other forums, which I do get involved in, there's always a nuclear question coming up there. You know, are nuclear weapons going to be used? Are we getting closer to a nuclear war? That is always on people's minds at the moment because this is a a serious European conflict.
0: Good point. Maybe James doesn't have time to mention it. Has it come up much, James?
1: Yeah, there has been questions regarding nuclear warfare and um, other sort of weaponry that that Russia may have and, and and what Ukraine's nuclear weaponry is or is not.
0: James, Nucky, really good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. I'll let you get back to your day job. News, discussions, and analysis. This. Is Now, there's no doubt that the people of Ukraine are enduring the very worst loss and suffering from Russia's invasion of their country. But if this war drags on, it threatens many more lives across the world. Ukraine's exports feed an estimated 400 million people. At least they did until three months ago. Well, now tens of millions of tons of grain is lying in Ukrainian silos, while Russia effectively blockades the Black Sea and a growing number of people around the globe face starvation
3: we are already facing the worst worst food crisis since world war ii and when you take 400 million people that are fed by the food that comes out of ukraine and you shut that off we're looking at a hell storm on
0: earth That's David Beasley from the UN's World Food Programme. Well, now a military solution has been suggested, creating a protected maritime corridor to restart vital food shipments from the Ukrainian port of Odessa. The Foreign Secretary has discussed with allies the possibility of Royal Navy involvement. though The government says there are no current plans. But could it work? What are the risks? What might the Royal Navy be asked to do? Former Royal Navy Commander Tom Sharp knows how to operate in contested war having captained a British warship in the Strait of Hormuz.
3: The first thing that they'll invariably ask to do is to populate the headquarters. Whoever becomes the controlling agency for this this lane, this protected corridor, there'll be an awful lot of command and control first. So there's always that, long before you get to warships in in the water patrolling whatever it is. So there'll always be a command and control element. Uh, and the Navy would wish to be part of that coalition.
0: How is it decided who, who is that controlling agency? What kind of discussions go on?
3: It changes every time simply because, it, because it's different every time. It might be the IMO. It might be the UN. It might be a, a co- within a country's jurisdiction. There's no one size fits all answer to that question. And that is why you want to be part of that process, because it's complicated and politically fraught right from the start.
0: And once the headquarters is set up, how could it work at sea?
3: Then you need to establish those those operating patterns. So the the transit corridor around the Horn of Africa, for example, you know became it became habit after a while. It became established on everybody's charts. So you get that issued as a as a notice to mariners. It gets published on on charts, and and notices are sent out to all mariners saying this internationally recognised transit corridor is now in force. It starts in this position. It ends in this position. You ought to call in on this channel at this position before entering and on un- un- exit. So you, you're basically applying a, a set of controls, much like you would on a regulated piece of road. Uh, and, and as I say, the size and shape of this and its proximity to land and its proximity to threat will all determine thereafter what sort of assets you need in place to then physically police it
0: proximity to threat what are the risks if this operation in the Black Sea were to happen
3: well I mean the Russians have an awful lot of long-range anti-ship missiles most of which can cover most of the Black Sea so you're inside the the threat envelope you're going to be on high alert the minute you're the minute you're put into a uh, a lane like this to police it you're going to be at your highest sustainable state of readiness um, right from the start I would suggest
0: and of course, there are also the mines that have been laid. How long might it take to clear them?
3: Um, clearing mines is almost a sort of how long is a piece of string question. It, it, it really is. It depends on to what percentage you want to guarantee your clear of mines. That that answer is very rarely 100%. That's that's nearly impossible. But if you want to go to an 80% chance um, or a 90% chance, and then, then how long that takes depends on how many mines there are and how long this corridor is that you want to clear but it's very slow that's for sure it can take weeks if not months
0: and you've captained a ship and contested
3: waters how hard a job is it the the, the difficulty is sustaining that level of alertness you you go in there you know so sort of fully coiled everybody's at action stations which is the highest state of readiness every weapon is crewed. every bit of kit has has someone out it everyone's up uh you can't sustain that so you then relax into what we call defense watches, which is the, which is the highest sustainable state. You can, you're six hours on, six hours off. Um, it's, it's not much of an existence, but you can sustain it indefinitely. The, the trick is keeping that going for days, if not, if not weeks. And that's, that's very, very difficult. You've got to find ways to motivate the crew. Um, you've got to try and find ways to relax when you can so that you can, you're ready to surge if you need to. Uh, and it's, mm. as the as the captain, that's a real that's a real trick is is sensing the the, the state of the ship and the, the readiness of the ship because it is very hard to sustain at a very high level. It's tough.
0: You mentioned that uh, you have got to find ways to motivate the crew. Uh, what did you do? How can you do it?
3: Well, in the Gulf, you do have a little bit of room to manoeuvre. You can you can move away from the. We were operating right up in the north a lot. Um, where it was it's always contested up there you the the waters are but the iranian waters and they they will rush you with their fast attack craft to test your responses um and if you're protecting the oil platforms up there you know there's a direct threat to those so it's and it's very shallow so it's physically hard to operate up there it's demanding but you can back away and sometimes it's just a question of of getting away for for 12 hours so you can everyone can just relax you know clean out the ops room whatever whatever it is it's just something a bit different and then everyone game face is on and you and you're back in there
0: and do you think uh, creating a protective maritime corridor in the black sea is feasible
3: um, it's it's going to be very very difficult uh, we're talking about large areas here and large amounts of assets physically it's possible it's a question of whether or not you can you can get the political will and the political alliances in place to to make it practically work um and then you've got to have the 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 stuff in there with the right kit that can protect you from Mm -hmm. from a very sophisticated threat so yes it's it's doable but it it will require an awful lot of um political will and maneuvering to make it happen
0: and if any royal navy ships were to be deployed to help create this corridor would you have any advice to offer
3: I think it's about the, it's about the biorhythm of, of, of effort on board, you know, peaking and troughing. Um, I think when ships get it wrong, they try too hard for too long and it becomes unsustainable. Fatigue sets in and people lose concentration. I always believe through my various ship commands that the key success was knowing when to turn it on, being able and ready to do so and having everyone around you able to do so. And just as important um is when to turn it off that that i think is is the trick otherwise you make mistakes and and that's when people get hurt
0: Former Royal Navy commander Tom Sharp, well, one thing that was crystal clear before Russia's invasion of Ukraine was that the US and other NATO countries would not join any fight. They ruled it out well in advance. But America's position on another possible invasion target, Taiwan, has long been deliberately much less clear. At least it was until President Biden's news conference in Tokyo this week. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that?
1: Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made.
0: Well, that appears to shatter the US policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, trying to leave China guessing on the price of an invasion while keeping America's options open. President Biden and his team insist he was not revealing a change in policy, but at the very least, it creates the impression he's let the cat out of the bag. So what effect is that having in China and Taiwan? Nicola Smith is Asia correspondent for the Daily Telegraph based in Taiwan.
4: I don't think anyone was particularly surprised by uh, President Biden's remarks, there's always been an implicit understanding that the US would intervene in a conflict because the stakes are just far too high, not only for Taiwan, but also for the United States own policies uh, and strategies in the Indo-Pacific. And this is the third time in the past nine months or so that President Biden has made this kind of statement. So the response, the immediate response in Taipei was quite muted. The foreign ministry and and the government they thanked uh, the U.S. for its rock-solid support, which is uh, a kind of standard phrase now, both um, used by Taipei and by Washington. Um, And uh, they also stressed that they wanted to find a a peaceful resolution with China. Um, But certainly. The Ukraine war has uh, given Taiwan more pause for thought. It's really focused minds here about how it would respond in the worst case scenario if China did choose to invade. Yes, because when we last spoke in January, you were telling us about the, the regular military
0: training there for the possibility of an invasion. But also it was relatively relaxed at that time amongst people. They didn't feel anything was imminent. How has what's happened in Ukraine
4: changed the mood there? The mood is definitely more focused, not only um, among the government and policymakers and the military, but also among the public. I think we've really seen a shift in the public's main mindset and public awareness that um, this invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked. Uh, it took everyone by surprise. And I think that really made the public in Taiwan a lot more alarmed about the possibility that the same could happen to them. It just made everything a bit more real. It's made people think a lot more about how would they respond personally how would they try to protect themselves, their families? Taiwan's obviously an island, so you can't easily escape over the borders. It has prompted a lot of people to look into things like trauma care and how to survive in, in a conflict or a crisis. Um, and for the government, for the military, it's also focused their minds on how to best prepare their defence strategy, uh, including you know what kind of weapons to buy. And in terms of what- what President Biden said, what about China's response?
0: Is it heightening tensions further? Do you get that sense?
4: Tensions are already high. I don't think it has heightened them any further. Beijing also gave quite a muted response saying that uh, there was no room for compromise over its sovereignty and territorial integrity. President Xi has made very clear that if Taiwan does not agree to peaceful annexation, so to speak, that, that he, you know, the invasion could be a possibility and the people of Taiwan do not want to be part of China. So I don't think it's raised tensions, but those tensions are already there and very real. And how much do you think China is looking at what's happening in Ukraine to inform how it decides its approach towards Taiwan? I think it's watching very closely what's happening in Ukraine. I think it will be looking at the international reaction, seeing how strongly the international community has pulled together to, to help Ukraine to provide weapons and also to impose punishing sanctions. I think that will certainly give Beijing pause for thought about whether it would be willing to risk the same um, in a conflict with Taiwan. And I do think it will also be looking at how the population of Ukraine has responded. I don't think it would be any different in, in Taiwan if there was an invasion that people would want to defend themselves and their families and their homeland. So what Ukraine has shown us is that, even with what appears to be a, a kind of overwhelming, powerful aggressor, that, that there's still a chance to fight back. And Taiwan is certainly looking at the lessons that, that can be drawn from Ukraine and how to best prepare itself for that worst case scenario. Nicholas Smith
0: in Taiwan, uh, Michael Clark, do you think the Ukraine conflict has changed the threat level of China trying to take Taiwan by force?
2: Well, I think in a way it's made it a little bit less likely because the prospect seems more vivid that I think, if anything, Taiwan is a little bit safer now than it was before the war because the uh, Chinese can see now that the West is not defined by what happened in Afghanistan last year in the retreat from Kabul and that the West can be united that sanctions can be very effective, economic sanctions, as they are being effective against Russia, and not least that there are military risks in Mm. um, invading other territories. So if anything, I think the, the reaction of the West to Ukraine has probably given the Chinese some sort of pause that the Western powers would not be so passive as they might have assumed that they would have been because we don't want to revisit the humiliation of Afghanistan.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, China's response was muted to what President Biden said. Do you think it has made any difference?
2: Yeah, I mean, President Biden was very clear and, and we're all waiting for clarification after it. And Whenever he says something, we, we look to the State Department <laughs> the Pentagon to then clarify the remarks. But I think mm. you know, what he was saying was true enough in that the United States would not be passive if China tried a, a military move against Taiwan and I think uh, Xi Jinping I think is taking that into account in the way he now approaches the Taiwan crisis for the future.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time and thanks to all of our guests. We'll be back after the long jubilee weekend. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can catch up with past programmes on the website bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.